0: Our today's guest is Parnaz Faruthan. She is someone who has lived through some of history's most defining moments. Her early childhood took place in the heels of the Iranian Islamic Revolution of 1979. She remembers attending school and swearing her allegiance to revolution leader Ayatollah Ruhullah Khomeini and being encouraged by her teacher to report her parents if they did bad things like listening to music, drinking wine, and speaking poorly of Khomeini. But at the age of six, this course of life was altered when her family uprooted them to a suburb of Los Angeles. Reeling with cultural shock and speaking no English, she had to learn to construct a new life, an identity in this new country that was rapidly changing to reflect the ideals of the Reagan administration. But 19 years later, after a life-altering moment, she returned to Iran to rebuild her relationship with the culture and identity that was lost. A little while later, she wrote a memoir to document her experiences. I am so excited to welcome Pernaz. This is Immigrantly, and I am your host, Sadia Khan.
1: There would be these gatherings of young people, and they would have to be hushed. Literally, like if there was going to be music, they would they would put blankets on the windows to muffle the sound so it wouldn't reach the street. Mm-hmm. There was codes to come into the apartment so the police wouldn't find out because gatherings are illegal.
0: Brnaz, I'm so excited to
1: have you on my podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there is so much to talk about and deconstruct, especially about your time in Iran, your books and your life in Los Angeles. But we'll start with an interview that you did in which you talked about the time when your family immigrated to a suburb of Los Angeles. By the way, I've heard Iranians call Los Angeles Tehran Angeles. Is that true?
1: It's very true <laughs> particularly in the Westwood area where almost every other business is either a kebabie or it's a bookstore you know the signs are written in Farsi it's heartwarming to be there oh. you know it's a little piece of Tehran nice. in the middle of Los Angeles
0: so when you moved, going back to my question, when you moved, your, when your family moved, in fact, you moved to a suburb, which was at the time, predominantly white, upper middle class and conservative. And in your words, it wasn't a good time to be Iranian. This was in early 1980s. Has anything changed now? Is it a good time to be an Iranian now versus,
1: say, in the 80s? Well, now I'm an adult, I have an understanding of my identity and myself. So it's hard for me to speak to that. Because when I came here in the 80s, I was a child. Hmm. And my identity was still in formation. So the prejudices and the vitriol and the anger toward Iranians in the 80s, this is during Reagan, following the hostage crisis, the Ayatollah is always on the evening news. As a child, I didn't understand the politics of it Mm. and neither did the children around me, but we were in a way play acting the, um, oh, let's just call it what it is. The hatred. Mm. We, we were, we were participating in a sort of mimicry of what the adults were participating in and being the sole ethnic child uh, and not even just, irunee but ethnic child in that school i was on the receiving end of a lot of playground bullying it was very very difficult now it's changed the playground in that neighborhood is much more colorful you know there's kids of all ethnicities i mean it's there's still a large white population However, you know, we have kids from China and Pakistan and Mexico and El Salvador. I mean, there's more folks. I think these kids are growing up in a more multicultural environment and and there's also this dialogue within the classroom that didn't exist in the 80s where now we're, you know, celebrating diversity. Whereas in the 80s, there was no discussion of celebrating diversity. I don't think we even used that word in respect to having people from all parts of the world within one classroom.
0: So, Pernas, given all the racism and vitriol that was targeted at you and your family, how did it affect the way you constructed your identity as an Iranian-American?
1: I'm ashamed to say it, but I was ashamed of being from Iran. I was ashamed of how I looked. I was ashamed of the fact that I couldn't speak a word of English. Mm. I was ashamed of my parents, of the way they spoke. I was ashamed of the food in my lunchbox because it wasn't, you know, crustless peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Mm -hmm. It was like dolmes, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I would pull it out, I would eat it as quickly as I could because anything that's marked me as different from those around me was a source of shame. And I didn't really, even into my teens, I didn't really quite accept my dual identity. I didn't really accept that I was from Iran and also American. I just wanted to be American.
0: How did that impact your relationship with your parents? I was
1: a secret rebel, <laughs> <laughs> meaning that on the surface I did everything a good irony you know, girl should do. You know, I was modest in dress, in behavior, I boys never called home, not even for school projects, God forbid. I was a, an overachiever in school, you know. So I played that particular, a very conservative notion of an Iranian girl. But the minute I left the house, I was a rebel. I would have lip gloss and I was very frank about my ideas. I was very, you know, loud in my classes with my opinions. I mean, I, I was sort of pushing against. Everything that was happening at home in the public sphere, it was a place to be free. You know, it's so interesting
0: you say that because when I think about Iranian-Americans, I think about a diaspora that is very liberal culturally and socially. Now, again, Iranians are not a monolith, like Pakistanis are not a monolith, But somehow in my mind and friends that I have, Iranian friends or people I've met, uh, most of them come across as so liberal and modern, so as to speak. But what you're describing is different from what I envisage when I think about Iranians in America.
1: I'm seeing a generational shift as well. And I'm not Mm. sure where your friends fall in during that diaspora mm. so in the early wave um, right after the revolution when you know uh, we started coming to America I feel like that generation of parents really wanted to hold on to the old country very much and the way they wanted to hold on to the old country one of the methods was to sort of enforce the cultural and gender, norms on their girls. So it was, you know, growing up my cousins and I, and I I come from a mixed religious household. So it was the same. And on my, my Jewish side, as it was on my Muslim side, Hmm. the parents were very, very worried about a girl's marriage worthiness, how marriageable they would be once they came of age. And I know that sounds rather now it, it sounds very backwards. And I guess then too.
0: It is a cultural nuance. And we can look at it in the cultural context and understand why parents would think that. Now to some, yes, it may appear backwards. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to understand these cultures
1: to understand the perspectives that people hold. Certainly. Yes, absolutely. And and those restrictions were in battle with everything around us. So you know, for example, it was very important to be modest and to be uh, to do well in school and to not at least publicly have relationships with boys, hmm. you know. But then you leave the, the sphere of that small community and your home and, you know, you're you're outside where everything speaks against that you know, where, you know, in fourth grade, everybody was talking about who was going study with who, <laughs> you know. So it was this constant battle uh, between, between the two cultures and very specific to gender. I feel like the boys in my community didn't experience the same sort of difficulties that, that we girls had to navigate.
0: Have you seen a shift in terms of how, boys and girls are treated now? Are girls treated any differently than
1: the way they were treated, say, 15, 20 years ago? Absolutely. Mm. I feel like there's been, and I I have a a very contentious relationship with this word, uh, but I'm I'm using it here. I've seen a lot of assimilation into American culture. Mm. So the young woman, of of my community right now are much more open about everything that they're doing they're not so concerned about what the elders and the family will say about them or their reputations and and so forth they're pretty much free to behave in the ways they want to i mean certainly the echoes of those restrictions exist and i'm sure that sort that places some restrictions on on the modalities of their behavior but Overall, I see a a lot more, uh, I don't know how to say it, a much more liberal approach to self, to expression of self.
0: And do you see any particular reasons for that shift to being more accepting of American culture or to be able to integrate more freely?
1: I haven't thought about that. But the few things that just come into my mind now, I think we're, as a culture, we're very adaptable I think we want to fit in. We want to be accepted. You know, an example, Um, uh, the Iranians, the Iranians in Los Angeles, Los Angeles specific, do not refer to themselves when someone says, you know, what's your ethnicity? They they don't say I am Iranian. Hmm. They say I'm Persian, you know, and I think the reason they do this is because they want to distance themselves from being associated with whatever negative connotation exists with being from Iran. They want to be part of a culture that accepts them. And perhaps in the rearing of their daughters and sons, that has seeped in as well. They, they want to integrate to assimilate americanness into into who they are mm. so perhaps that's it and i'm not sure actually what's led to the shift maybe it's just the onslaught of a of a dominant culture and it's difficult to maintain the old ways or who you were prior to this new home when everything around you is screaming against that and has a negative view of what that is. And also maybe because
0: the people who are in their 20s now are probably a couple of generations removed from the generation that moved to the U.S. I think integration becomes much more natural and organic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a few days, it's Noruz. It's our it's the Iranian New Year. Huh. Uh, yes. So I've, I've laid out our, our traditional uh, sofreh I have seen and I'm getting the gifts and everything, but I have children and we celebrate Christmas too. Huh. You know, we, we do, we do both. And my parents were very staunchly against celebrating the Christmas holidays because mm-hmm. it was not ours. And I remember as a kid, I was sad about that. You know, my kids, uh, my, my peers would come to school and brag about all the wonderful gifts and Santa this and Santa that. And I felt, again, I felt isolated and separate from the culture that I was growing up in. I didn't want my kids to have that sort of, I mean, it led to a sort of resentment for me, hmm. you know, and I, I don't want my children to grow up that way. I wanted them to grow up loving the, the culture that their mother was presenting to them and sort of accepting it. As, as their own without juxtaposing it as, as something, you know, against what their peers experience.
0: You know, this is such an interesting point because we don't celebrate Christmas. We wish our friends who do And we even give them gifts. But it's not like something that we celebrate in our household. And I'm assuming my kids are fine with it. But after having this conversation with you, maybe I should go home and sit them down and have a serious conversation as to what they really feel about that. But maybe, I guess, we are in a predominantly Jewish town and many Jewish kids don't celebrate it as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why they don't feel it as much, I guess. But going back to what you mentioned, Pirnaz, about negativity around Iran and Iranian people living in Iran, I want to talk about a piece, an extremely interesting piece that you wrote for NBC in response to the way that the media framed Iranian public's response to the death of General Qasim Soleimani. You criticized the fact that, you know, American news outlets were framing him to be a revered hero to the Iranian people. You were basically challenging the notion that Iranian people thought of him as a hero. Now, here's my take on it. I believe his funeral procession was large. Now, we could say that loyalists probably came out in droves to show solidarity. Um, Most of them probably were government loyalists. But Iran has a range of opinions. It's not a monolith. Is it fair to say that the way he was killed made him more of a martyr than if he died any other way. So what I saw was Iranian populations' solidarity to their nation rather than to Soleimani, per
1: se. I, I don't know the way he was killed. I mean, certainly U.S. intervention in Iran's politics has a uh, turbulent history. Hmm. So I, I can understand how there would be fear and anger at this sort of bully approach to countries' system of governance, which is what what the U.S. has been doing for years and years. However, the funeral processions I don't think represented the vast majority of people. What I did hear from family and relatives in Iran at that time was that public transportation was at a complete standstill because they were using everything to bus people in to fill up the squares mm-hmm. so that when they showed footage of those processions, it would seem like a huge moment of national solidarity. Now, whether it was or wasn't, is very difficult to assess because we have limited access to information, right? Right. So if they say that the lens is constructed in such a way as to capture this moment of solidarity, we don't have much to say otherwise. And the reason we don't have much to say otherwise is because anything opposed to what the state, what the government is trying to put out is quickly silenced. In a government like Iran, in order for that government to function, they have to control very closely the image And what people say and what people think. And that's been happening for 40 years. I mean, that fear, that terror has been instilled in the people. So when someone is martyred, and that's a very loaded word, right? If the government is saying this is a martyr, anyone standing in opposition to that is risking their life. So you're not going to see or hear from them.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But what do you think this says about the role of Western media in providing these one-sided narratives for issues related to Iranian politics? I see it all the time. What is your take on it?
1: In this case, particularly, I was shocked to see the sort of amnesia that existed in Western media. I mean, just Two months prior to that, Mm -hmm. there was the protests in in Iran, and then, then there was the internet blackout where you didn't know what was happening, and it was terror that was happening. They were opening up live ammunition in the crowds. They took thousands of political prisoners. I mean, it was a nightmare that the rest of the world did not witness. And considering Soleimani's role within the government, it's pretty safe to assume that he also had a part in that because he did have a part in quailing protests in general. The army kept moving today, trying to head off the demonstrations, keep them where possible from throwing inside. This dogged military resistance to the anti-Shah disturbances, part of an effort to buy the Shah as much time as possible in which to create a political solution. Demonstrations like these today in Tehran are a daily occurrence in towns throughout the country now, and one sign of the fact there is nothing less than a kind of revolution being attempted here, trying to change the form of Iran's government, and unlikely to settle easily for any solution which still keeps the Shah on his throne. The 50,000 volunteer marshals along the route were no match for
0: the hundreds of thousands of Khomeini followers in the streets of Tehran. Residents, revolutionaries, soldiers, driving through the streets where there are no traffic jams, waving pistols, rifles, machine guns. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. The imperial guards there gave up without a struggle. Two of Iran's top generals, the commander of the ground forces, and the head of the Shah's imperial guards have been killed roaming the city of Tehran in search of officials, those loyal to the Shah. The Khomeini followers also located the military governor of Tehran and his aide. Both of them have been taken into custody. It is said they will be tried. There were also firefights like this one throughout the city.
1: So we just witnessed that. We, we saw the images of the crowds before the blackout. Then there was headlines about the blackout. And then all of a sudden, there is this amnesia and the Western media starts reporting about, oh, the people of Iran are now mourning their beloved hero. Mm-hmm. And I, I I felt like pulling out my hair because I couldn't understand why we weren't putting two and two together, why we couldn't see the entire narrative. And maybe it's not just the media's fault. Maybe it's the viewer's fault as well, because... We can't just sort of consume what what we're being given. I think we need to piece it together. We need to come to our own conclusions and, and demand to know the whole story.
0: Yeah, but in case of Iran, would you agree that America has a history of oversimplifying and sometimes even glorifying some periods of Iranian history and on other occasions, completely erasing them. We see that specifically with the way Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza pelvi was portrayed, right? His corruption, authoritarian tendencies, his close relationship with the U.S. was always somehow overlooked or justified.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: That goes back almost like 40 years, even more than 40 years. And I think that's why when I think about Iran and how Iran is portrayed in media and how people consume news about Iran, I don't blame people as much because I feel like they've been fed a narrative for so long that if I were fed that kind of narrative about a country or an ethnicity, it would be very difficult for me to break away from that.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's impossible when we construct an entire narrative of a people for somebody to say, well, to question that narrative. I mean, it's it, it's so it's become so solidified, you know, it, it's fossilized.
0: And as a critic of propaganda, Purna's, and as a writer of social, political, and cultural topics, what guidelines do you think writers and people in the media should follow? in order to not fall into this, you know, category of propaganda and break away from what we're seeing time and time again?
1: I think a culture of inquiry outside of what you said, the forced narrative Mm -hmm. is important. And I think we need to stop looking at a particular, just the, the nowness of an event and start understanding the history that precedes it that's really important. You know, we, for example, we look at the Shah, the the narrative of the Shah, mm. you know, that he, he was this uh, moment of freedom for the people of Iran and, and it was great and everybody was happy and then he was overthrown and then the Islamic regime took over, and now everyone's miserable. And like you said, it's it's an oversimplification of the history of Iran. What we don't see is that previous to that, there was a, a movement toward democracy, of nationalizing the oil with Mossadegh that the CIA overthrew. And then previous to that, In uh, the early part, from like 1906 to 1911, there was a democratic uprising in Iran that um, was overthrown by the British and the Russians because they wanted the the natural resources of Iran. They wanted their position there. And Mm. so it didn't matter that the people wanted freedom and representative government and a democracy. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful moments in Iran's history that was very quickly destroyed. So when we're looking at now, we, we can't forget all of the history that precedes it to understand the complexity of what we're seeing before us. And maybe the nature of how stories are presented to us needs to change completely like we can't just say, "Oh yes, uh, the people of Iran are, are are oppressed by the Islamic theocracy." Well, we need to understand that it's not just the Islamic theocracy that has created this systematic oppression. It's colonialism. It's it's uh, foreign countries that have vested interests that are willing to sacrifice an entire nation of people for what they want. Well, maybe we need to tell fuller stories. Do
0: you think it's harder to tell fuller stories, given the fact that probably many in the Western society, especially in America, don't want to hear that those stories are not as quote unquote marketable?
1: Yes, absolutely. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Hold on. It's possible that those stories are marketable because we demand those stories. We want to hear the stories mm-hmm. of the poor, oppressed people of Iran or maybe we just want stories of iran and the only stories we've been fed are the poor oppressed people of iran so we don't know that there's more but there's a part of us that's hungry for other other stories as well so it's it's hard to tell i i, I think i i you know chicken or the egg situation i don't i don't know which is coming which comes first
0: talking about stories let's talk about your latest book home is a stranger It's a memoir that details your journey of returning to Iran. And the book's description puts it beautifully. It says, and I'm quoting, 19 years later, after the death of her father and a frightening diagnosis for herself, she decides rekindling her shattered spirit is more important to her than undergoing open-heart surgery. She returns to her homeland, this time as a stranger. Pranaz, if you don't mind talking about it, could you tell us a little bit about the emotional state you were in after your father's death and your own diagnosis?
1: Yes. So in my teenage years, when I was 17, my father was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a a devastating way to die. Hmm. And he was sick for three years and then he passed. And the day he died, I had the most transcendent experience of my life, all all of a sudden, the world opened up and it was beautiful and it was loud and it was full of grace. And I was walking around just open to it. And in that openness, I started to see things differently. You know, we lived in a suburb and I could see just the monotony of that comfort the tediousness of it, the sort of veneer of happiness, but it was just uh, folks going to work and shopping and sitting in front of the TV and repeat. And then I, you know, I went to college and then I had my first two jobs. I tried a career in education and I felt I wasn't fit for it at the time. And then I tried to I. I was in the industry in the film industry. I was worked at a subtitling firm, and I would sit at my desk day in and day out, working on these films, subtitling these films. And I felt so empty. And I would go out. It was in Hollywood. I would go out during my lunch break, and I would walk in the streets, and you know, the billboards just felt like a like an onslaught of like being attacked, you know. Mm. And there was, you know, there was tourists on one end, looking at the stars beneath their feet on the Walk of Fame. And then right next to them were homeless people sprawled on the ground. And and I, I, I couldn't understand what I was seeing. It was too much. And during that time, my uncle Behrouz came from Iran to visit back when travel was a little bit easier between the two. It was never easy, but it was easier. He came by to, to visit us after many, many years of not being able to come see us. And he started telling me stories about Iran. He he was a Jewish man, and he would take groups of his son's friends who were predominantly Muslim Mm. into the wilderness. They would go wilderness trekking through the mountains. Now there's no trails. Like they would just pack their stuff and they would go into the mountains from one village through the wilderness to another. And they would just live in that wilderness for three days, four days surviving with just what they had. And I was blown away by these stories the closeness to nature, the dangers that they went through, the beauty of it, the just the 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 stories of the parties they would have by the fires, the campfire at night. So I decided, you know what, it's time for me to go back. I hadn't been back to Iran since we escaped, since I was six years old. Mm. And another reason why I wanted to go back was because when my father got sick, I was 17 and he died I was 20. I didn't ever get to know him as an adult, as a, as I was a child. I still, when I knew him, he was just father. Mm -hmm. I didn't know him as a human. And I was very hungry for, for knowing who he was. And I thought, well, if I go to Iran, I'll see something of him. There'll be something of him there. So I packed my bags and I went to Iran. (laughs) And when I got there, I mean, I was scared. I was really scared because the narratives I saw of Iran were the same narratives everyone else was seeing.
0: And you went alone, like not with your mother, not with your sister, just alone. Wow.
1: Yes, I I packed my, my pack and my suitcase and I went. And right before leaving, I'd always had this heart condition, but we didn't know my heart would start racing. And my mom said, well, if you're going to go wild, uh, trekking at high altitudes, I want you to get a full checkup at least make sure everything's okay. Mm. So I went in for an appointment. They did all these tests and they couldn't figure out why I would have the arrhythmias, but they happened to find a couple of holes in my heart. And my right atrium was enlarged and my life was in danger, but I was 24 years old and I didn't really understand what that meant. Mm. So I didn't tell my mother because I, if I told her, she wouldn't let me go. Oh, wow. Yes. So I, I went. I, I didn't tell anyone. I, the doctor gave me the diagnosis. He said, you need surgery really quickly. And I said, well, you know what? I'll think about that when I return. And I went to Iran and I was there for several months falling in love with that country so what did you fall in love with? Everything, everything. Mm. I fell in love with all of it. I was blown away by it. I went there scared, as I was saying. I was so afraid because I, all I saw was, oh my God, the women are forced to wear hijab. And if they don't wear hijab, they're taken to dark prisons and they're beaten. And, and those stories are true. It's not that that doesn't happen. There is terror enacted upon women, a systematic terror that exists but outside of that beyond that people live mm-hmm. and i was invited you know to experience that with them and there would be you know, there would be these gatherings of young people and they would have to be hushed literally like if there was going to be music they would they would put blankets on the windows to muffle the sound so it wouldn't reach the street mm-hmm there was codes to come into the apartment so the police wouldn't find out because gatherings are illegal, period. Co-ed gatherings of unmarried people are illegal. Hmm. So, you know, there's this heightened sense of living when you know that at any moment the Basiji police, the the Basijis, the morality police can break down the door and take you all in for just listening to music and dancing. And yet people do that. They listen
0: to music and they dance and they they enjoy their lives, right? Oh my god, so
1: much. So much. You know, I grew up aside from the restrictions within the home. I grew up in the US where we had the liberty to dance and enjoy music all we wanted. And I certainly did in my 20s dance and enjoy music and go to parties and you know, go to raves and go to clubs, but there was something different in Iran. I think it was almost as if it wasn't taken for granted. There was a risk involved for indulging in that particular experience. And so you didn't take it for granted. You really lived in it. You really appreciated it because the cost was so much. Pranaz, did you discover
0: anything about your dad? Because that was also the intention, right? To go and discover something that you didn't know about your father. Uh,
1: My response to this is going to be um, odd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll tell you. Um, I did. It's as if the entire country was him speaking to me. For example, Mm -hmm. on on my second day, on a walk to the neighborhood bazaar, my first outing alone, you know... uh, I was going to the neighborhood bazaar to buy some bell peppers or something for my aunt who I was staying with. And you were uh, in Tehran. I was in Tehran, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, I'm walking to the bazaar. I'm I'm trying to be, you know, uh, uh, careful. And then all of a sudden, in front of me, this garden gate bursts open, and this rooster runs out down the pavement, down the street. And then these two children run after it screaming and then they're followed by this old man in his flopping sandals and he's cursing and they're all chasing this rooster. (laughs) And I was blown away by it, by just this, it was so unexpected. I mean, I'll tell you, never in the 30 plus years that I've lived in the U.S. has anything that unexpected and that joyful popped out on the suburban streets that I've lived in. Or the city streets. This sort of like... It's a simplicity of life. The the simplicity of it. And the, I mean, the old man was cursing, but you could see that he understood the sublimity of that moment in the way he was laughing and chasing his grandchildren and the rooster. There was poetry in it. The people of Iran are very sensitive to the poetry of life, to the sublime in the day-to-day. I mean, every taxi driver is a poet, I swear to you. (laughs) If they're not a poet themselves, they know poetry by rote. And they will just throw it in conversation. You're driving, they're taking you somewhere, you're having a political discussion, and all of a sudden they're throwing in a line from Hafez by memory. (laughs) They know thousands of lines, you know, or... I don't, it's just so alive. It's such a magnificent place. And that, that narrative, since we we're talking about narratives, I mean, the narrative we see about Iran is the darkness, the hijab, the oppression, the mourning, the pulling of hair, the pounding of fists against the chest. There's pizza joints. People eat pizza, you know? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. It's- it's the same
0: with Pakistan. It's like these these narratives that are created of societies
1: which are so untrue. Absolutely. And it's a it's a form of dehumanization, isn't it?
0: Mm, that absolutely. We,
1: yeah, we reduce people to their oppression. So they are oppressed, true. But then we reduce their entire story to that oppression. so that we, we strip them of their humanity, the best intentioned of us. Take away their humanity because the only thing we're looking at is their suffering. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at the courage with which they live their lives, the joy which they bring to it. I, I don't know. I, I I feel like that's important to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you hope readers to take away from this book, Bernas? I hope they see that. Mm-hmm. They see the, And I write this book. About myself at 24, and I was surrounded by 24-year-olds. Right. And there's a particular uh, joie de vie, I don't know, <laughs> happiness, that mm. this particular thirst for life that comes with being that age. And I focused on that thirst, wanting to experience the world. I mentioned the restrictions Mm -hmm. and the bad siege and the oppression. But I did not want the volume of that turned up. I mean, I couldn't ignore it because that would be irresponsible and a lie because it is obviously very much a part of the story, but I didn't want to draw the reader's attention to that because I feel most narratives, particularly nonfiction narratives about Iran are around that Oh, the oppression. Oh, the, you know, the. how about just how people fall in love, you know? And how was your transition
0: back? Like when you came back from Iran to Los Angeles, what were initial few months like? Oh, well, that's,
1: I came back right after September 11th. Oh. So I was in Iran during September 11th. And then I returned to L.A. uh, a little bit, I think about a month after. And it was uncanny. The world had been turned upside down in the period of a month. I left Los Angeles with life being normal. And when I came back, there were flags plastered everywhere. There was murals of... Uh, you know, people, soldiers in fatigues with helicopters and eagles and fire, mm. and and there's the the uh, the people. The Iranian community was very frightened because there was a lot of antagonism toward the people. So my uncles had put flag bumper stickers on the windows of their cars and and their bumpers to show their solidarity with the U.S. But even still, when they would come up to red lights, people would spit at them. Hmm. You know, my own grandmother had a flag on her car because she was frightened. Hmm. So I left the U.S. in one state of being and returned to it upside down, completely different. And at the same time, I also had to have my my heart situation had gone out of hand. So there was this. Violence against my body as well. Mm-hmm. I, I needed to go in for surgery. The, it was very, very frightening. So I was watching the world go through this sort of uh, shaking up and and fear and and darkness. And then also within my own experience within my own body, there was this tumultuous this moment of terror of of you know, am I going to die? And um, it all came collapsing down. It was it was quite overwhelming. And what kept you going in all of this? God. Uh, I'm 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 a spiritual person. I'm, you know, it was God that kept me going. During my father's death, I had a spiritual awakening, a, a very transcendent moment of of rapture where the world was opened up to me. And we can call it whatever. I mean, you can call it nirvana or you can call it, I don't know, anything, anything you want. The universe spoke to me. Mm. And f- at that point, I called that beauty and that grace God. And I felt that presence in the darkest moments of my life. And that's all that kept me going mm. because there was really after my surgery I, I was in and out of the emergency room because my heart was not complying
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was in a lot of pain because I had become so afraid to move that all the muscles in my upper body had depleted so then I was on a lot of pain medication that was sort of dulling my wits <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I, so it was a period of very dark deep depression and the only thing that kept me alive was the the beauty of the world as it manifested. And then I returned to Iran. Oh, you went back? I did. After a few months of convalescence, I returned. I wanted to live there. So, how long did you live in Iran then? I think I stayed another six months. I tried to get a job there, and uh, there was a young man who was interested in marrying me. And um, I, I went back to marry him until his father found out that I had Jewish blood, and everything went south from there Mm -hmm. i tried i tried to live and i realized and this was maybe one of the most heartbreaking moments of my identity formation that i wasn't iranian you know i wasn't and i wasn't american either so now it was a question of well what where do i fit in what's my home so have you
0: found that sense of belonging now, like 20 years from all that was happening around 9-11?
1: Yes, I have. And it's going to sound cliche and silly, and you will forgive me, and you can edit this out if you like. <laughs> but this tiny little speck of a planet is it. This is home. Huh. And every single human being on it, is mine. That's beautiful. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I love Iran, you know. I love it. And when I see, right now particularly, the people who are really suffering through mm. the virus, I see that and it tears me apart. And I love America. Mm. I love it. It is so beautiful in its essence. And you know what? I love Pakistan, and I love Mexico, and I love (laughs) El Salvador, and I love the Italians. (laughs) You know, it's it's home. I think it's time for us to evolve, not saying that I'm evolved, forgive me, but I think it's time for us to evolve past the notion that our political boundaries define us and Mm -hmm. separate us. That is a very barbaric idea. I wish people
0: think like you more and they accept others as their own and we won't have the
1: problems that we have. Of course not. And imagine this, what we could achieve with that sort of solidarity once we drop this sort of inane, infantile notion of you live there Hmm. across that wall. And I live here. And if you step into my part, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to tear your children Mm. from your arms and and put them in. In cages.
0: Yes. Yeah. What are we doing? (laughs) Absolutely. So I ask my guests to describe America in one word, and you've already done that, but I still want you to... Describe America, given all that's happened, how you've experienced America as an Iranian-American. How would you describe it?
1: Boy, that's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Um, Look, America was this dream of finding happiness, of finding self, of belonging. And, you know, from its very moment of inception, That was what it was founded on, of strangers, of people coming here to try to build something out of nothing. That's what it is. And it's always been. And to take that away from America is to strip her of her beauty.
0: Thank you so much, Bernaz. This was wonderful. I had so much fun talking to you. This was just wonderful.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me and for allowing me to to share my ideas with you and your listeners.
0: So where can, sorry, before we go, where can we find your book?
1: Everywhere. You can find it everywhere. However, since your local bookstores are really suffering right now, please find out who your local bookstore is and order directly from them because they don't have the foot traffic because of the virus. So home is a stranger, just ask them for it and they they can they can also ship it to you. It won't come immediately next day prime, but you know, it'll come. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you, you too. Thank Be you. well.
0: Be sure to tune in next week with another incredible story. We are on Twitter at immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at immigrantly pod and stay safe.